meantime, Biden is going backwards in the latest polls post-debate. Taking him on, even over race, worked. You know what that means. There's going to be more of it. And the opponent who came at him the most benefited the most in the recent polls. Kamala Harris, the Senate from California, got a big boost. Question, is that why the president's son retweeted a birther-style smear about her? That's the great debate. And what was his sister Ivanka doing at the center of G20 class photos and private conversations with world leaders? She was also at her father's high-stakes sit-down with Kim Jong-un at the DMZ. Shouldn't we have the best diplomats and experts beside our president who clearly needs the support? And lawmakers went to the border today and they were shocked. You should be too, but not for the same reason. What do you say? Let's get after it. All right, we knew things were going to change after this debate, but boy, did they change a lot. Five points now separate Joe Biden from the candidate in the number two slot. And that right now is Senator Kamala Harris rocketing her way to second place in our brand new CNN poll. Her support with Democrats, nine points to the plus since Thursday's debate. Biden's number, 10 the bad way. Warren, Senator Elizabeth Warren, now in third place. Sanders in fourth. Now, what's noteworthy is that black voters are keeping Biden even in the lead even after the race row, uh, row that rocked the debate. But, you know, I'm stuttering a little bit because it's, I didn't really write it the right way. There's a lot of change within the black vote numbers that we're going to have to take a look at, and we will uh, tonight. It's a mixed message in there. Let's bring in Congressional Black Caucus member um, Bobby Rush, who's now a surrogate for Harris, endorsing her as a once-in-a-lifetime leader. It's good to have you on, sir. Chris, it's certainly good to be on. Uh, the pleasure is mine, as always. And the reason that I'm working my way through that is that, you know, when you look at the black vote here, um, are they still for Biden? Yes, but they came down and Harris had a huge pop that seems to be a nod of recognition among the African-American voter base. How do you see the change in the numbers after the debate? Well, I think that uh, Senator Harris uh, really uh, introduced herself to Mm -hmm. America, to all of America. And certainly she uh, answered the question that was on the minds of most Americans, most of the Democratic voters, and that is... Uh, can she be elected? Uh, as you know, uh, the number one priority for Democrats is someone who can be elected. Mm-hmm. They want Trump out. And so they're looking for a candidate who can take it to Trump, who can stand toe-to-toe with Trump, who can represent them uh, in a meaningful, profound, and strong way. And that person uh, showed up uh, and the debate last Thursday, and that person is Senator Kamala, uh, Kamala Harris. So you believe that, that Kamala Harris is the best bet for the Democrats uh, to win the presidency. Would you change your mind? Everybody should know, but Bobby's a Democrat from Illinois. Uh, Congressman, would you change your mind if President Barack Obama came out and said, I think Joe Biden is the best one? I am absolutely 100 percent behind Senator Kamala Harris. Mm. I think that she has what it takes to beat Trump. And that's, uh, I'm going to be working very, very hard and vigorously uh, for her in Illinois 
and throughout the Midwest. Uh, I think that she is the one. I think that this is our opportunity to uh, really uh, come around, get around, gather around the candidate, and really take uh, uh, this nomination and take this victory and kick this guy out of the White House. All right, Congressman, I'm going to put up the numbers. Uh, and look, everything's subject to change. You've been studying polls, uh, you know, for decades. They're just a suggestion of where we are at a moment in time. Best chance to beat Trump. If you look right now, um, Kamala doesn't have uh, the highest number. It's still Biden by a big long shot, but she's new. The race is early. She's certainly moving up. Here's my question for you. Uh, the senator seems to struggle on the most important issue for Democrats, which is health care. She keeps going back and forth uh, between being all in like Bernie Sanders and then not more than once, Congressman. She's made the same mistake. And to be clear, I've invited her on the show. I invite her campaign to come on the show all the time to have these discussions. I can only make the offer. I can't accept it for them. Um, but she keeps saying, yeah, I'm all in. No more private insurance. Yeah, I'm OK. Medicare for all. And then she backs up afterwards. It's not a good way to go forward into this. I have a couple of questions about it. First, what do you think about the back and forth? Well, I think that uh, as this campaign unfolds, as the uh, uh, Candidates are honing and sharpening their message and their positions. I think that uh, Senator Harris will be uh, real crystal clear on where she stands uh, on uh, the issue of uh, health care for all Americans. Um, and I'm not sure whether or not it's going to be Medicare for all or what it would be, but I think that she would be absolutely 100 crystal clear on her uh position in terms of health care. Well, it's going to be important also because I think you guys have a problem on health care. There's no question looking at the midterms uh, that people, yes, there was a rejection of the president, uh, even though he wasn't on the ballot, he was. But health care was their main concern. Now, for Democrats, you have to figure out what your deal is for the American people. And it seems like the more polling that's done, the idea of the extreme is not extremely liked. Well, uh, by the American voter. They, don't, well, they well, want their private insurance. There's one thing that I do know about Senator Harris is that she is not extreme. I think that Senator Harris is the candidate, the only candidate right now who one can stand toe-to-toe -to -toe with, with Trump and beat Trump uh, and also who can carry the Midwest. Mm. She is the uh, candidate that have the values that really enticed me, that really persuaded me that uh, she's the one. It's not the extremes. You know, she can come down the middle on health care and be the solid uh, representative, the solid nominee mm -hmm. for those who want to have a comprehensive and, and, and viable and affordable health care system in America. Senator Harris, all right, has what it takes uh, to bring uh, the health care uh, program and policy that this nation is crying, crying out for. I have no doubt about it, All right. personally. Congressman Bobby Rush, that's why you endorsed Kamala Harris. We appreciate you being on the show to make the case. Be well, sir. Thank you so much. All right, be well. Congressman Bobby Rush, Democrat, Illinois. It's going to be a, a big part of the developing picture there. How many from the Congressional Black Caucus come to Harris? She saw a jump in that after the debate. Now, there's no question that the former VP, Joe Biden, slipped. But what else do we see in this data? 
Uh, there are different messages about African-American voters. And there are messages for all the top Democrats about which way they want to go on health care. The Wizard of Odds gave me these insights, and he has foresight, and he is next. Debates matter. You know the expression in sports, that's why they play the game, that you can prognosticate all you want. But once you play, things happen. All right? It's about the people who are now going to attach support based on issues and based on the messenger and the message. All right? Now, we're going to look inside the numbers with Harry here in a second, but we're going to look in terms of the people, but also the policies. There's a message for Democrats on health care, and it focuses around how far do people want to see it go in terms of change. So let's bring in the wizard of odds, Harry Enten. So we'll talk about the policy stuff, but in terms of now versus May, we knew Biden was going to take a hit. How big and where? Yeah, I mean, as we were sort of talking about a little bit before, look at this. I mean, this is a huge drop. Look at this number. 22 percent now. That's down 10 points from May versus Harris. This time, not a bad arrow from me. She's up nine points up to she 17. She basically took his 10. She right? basically took his 10. This I'm a little less sure about. This may have happened a little bit before, but I think these are the two most important numbers. And what is driving that? Look at this among African-Americans. So we can split this up. We'll look at our June numbers as well as our April and May. And we see Biden is still ahead in June at 36 percent. But look, that is way down from 49 percent versus Harris is the only one who appreciably jumped. She jumped from 6 percent in April and May to 24 percent now. So now it's really a two way fight for the African-American vote between the two of them. Mm. And when you're looking at this now, yeah, the idea of. This is bad for Biden. He's got to get his game going. You know, he has to show that he can deal with his past and translate it into the future. Yeah. All right. Or otherwise he's got trouble because he's going to get more attacks now. Oh, you you, because you know, it works. You but there's going to be another set of attacks. Yeah. What else do we see in these numbers about what's a problem for Democrats not named Biden? Yeah. So I think if we were to look, for instance, at Medicare for all. I think that this is an important one. And basically what we have here is this is actually this should just be registered voters, but we can cross it out. It says registered voters. And then we can go down the list. And what do we see? So should there be a government health insurance program? Should it be replaced with private insurance? Overwhelmingly, potential Dem voters say that, yeah, we should have a government run program. But look at this. Favor should replace with with, with private plans versus favor should not replace. Should, should, should replace with public. <laughs> look at this. But this is the be- well, I can't do it. Yeah, that was whatever. Great. But Jeez. favor should replace with a private plan versus yeah. favor and should uh, no pu- favor replace with a public plan. Favor should not replace with a public plan. This, I think, is important because 30 percent, 30 percent say we should favor and replace overall. I took versus, it away from oh, you. Took it away you were from screwing me. it up. I was now screwing it up. OK. Favor and should replace overall 30 percent among Democratic pr- primary voters versus 49 percent who yeah. say we should favor and should not replace it with all public. I mean, plan. look, doesn't the analysis end right here that half your party says don't take away my private insurance? Don't make the Obama mistake in quotes. I know you, the Democrats are going to attack me about this when he said you can keep your doctor. People fear the change. People. It's tenuous enough. Is that why Kamala Harris keeps going back and forth about, uh, yes, here's my hand raised, but now my campaign's going to switch? I think that's exactly right. In fact, you could add up the 13 percent here and it's 60 percent who don't want to change it. But take a look at Harris's numbers, because I think this is important. Right. This is this, I think, is rather key. Should there give government health care insurance? Should it be replaced with a private? Uh, should be replaced? And this is among Kamala Harris's own supporters in our poll. Eighteen percent, only 18 percent say 
that the private insurance plans should all be replaced among her supporters. I don't know. It's not the first time. It's not the first time. But I think this is her hesitancy, right? She perhaps thinking, okay, the Bernie and Warren supporters we want, and they do want it replaced in our poll. But it's this sort of middle of the block vote, which she is sort of going back and forth. Her whole thing is speak truth. You know what? A lot of times politicians say speak truth and not necessarily always speaking truth. And when you're dealing with an issue like this, in which the liberal base of the party wants to replace private insurance with a public one for all versus that more centrist block of the party that doesn't, that I think is the real issue here that's going on. And she's not sure. But this poll to me indicates that she should say, I should have a public option. We should not get rid of a private insurance. And that's a problem for Sanders. It's a problem for Warren, not as much. It's a problem for Harris, just if we deal with the top. Not a problem for Biden. I think we're going to hear a lot more about that from the VP. This is the type of thing that Joe Biden should go after because this, he can say, I defend Obamacare. Obama is loved by Democrats. And this overall is very, very key. You cannot have uh, the ACA, Obamacare, if you want, and any of these versions of this plan. Both will not coexist. It doesn't work. So it's one or the other. This is the key. This is the key. Thank you very much, my friend. I appreciate it. We'll talk about whether you get to use the writing anymore. I don't know. Yeah, this was, this was uh, a you, step back. You know, when, you know in, in college, I used a computer all the time. Maybe I can use a computer on here. Yeah. We'll bring a typewriter out, you know, yeah, manual no, typewriter. Like I'll we'll punch start, it one we'll by slow. one. We'll go, we're going to bring back the whiteboard. You'll start on that. Uh, yeah. Yeah, like that's, how I train, that's how I trained up. There we go. All right. So this story uh, matters, okay? Nothing happens by accident in politics these days. Some Twitter trolls, including the president's son, has been trying to undercut Kamala Harris's breakout performance with what? Take a guess. Race-related birther-type smears. Apple doesn't fall far from the tree. It's something worth debating. Can the man on the right make the case it's an accident? Will the man on the left ever accept that? The faces tell the story. Senator Kamala Harris, strong performance in last week's debate. You know what that means. She's now fresh meat for the fringe right. And none other than Don Jr. has taken up the knife as well. He retweeted this last week. Part of it reads, quote, Kamala Harris is not an American black. She is half Indian and half Jamaican. Don Jr. later deleted the retweet. But like his father, he opened the door to another birtherism style conspiracy playing with race. And obviously it's against a Democrat. Now, His spokesman says, oh, it's a misunderstanding. Is it or is it exactly what it looks like? That's the start of tonight's great debate with Michael Eric Dyson and Patrick Griffin. Patrick, thank you for taking uh, for taking up this case. Not an easy one. What is your defense of the obvious? Well, Chris, I come here not to defend Trump or Donald Jr. I come here because I think it was a mistake. I think that uh, when you do this kind of thing and engage in this kind of thing, you take a narrative this week for the president that is on everything but what they should be talking about. President had a summit meeting. President went back to see Chairman Kim. Uh, The president got at least a temporary deal with China. And he's got Democrats fawning all over themselves, as you pointed out in your previous segment, about who can be most socially to the left. This is not the kind of message, and race is the last place we should be going. So then why is he playing with it? I don't like it, and I won't defend it. All right, well, but why I also, why it? are you saying it's a, why do you say, you say you won't defend it, but you do defend it by saying, I think it was an accident. You don't retweet by accident. You don't ask a question about the thing that you're retweeting by accident. 
Chris, I never said it was by accident. I'm not sure where that's coming from. What I have said is Donald Trump Jr. should know better. And there's no reason to engage in this kind of thing. The bottom line is this is achieving exactly what the president doesn't need right now Mm. and exactly a place to be going where we don't need. Well, I'm not sure where that's coming. That's an interesting that's an interesting point, because I think uh, uh, the other debater tonight will take the opposite, that this is exactly where he wants to be. This is exactly why he did this with President Obama. It's why he played with race during his election. And now the idea that Don Jr. says, well, I didn't know she was half Indian. You know, and that's how you express that kind of surprise is uh, with millions of people on Twitter. Do you buy it? What's it about to you? Yeah, it's a plausible deniability, right? Oh, I didn't intend it. We don't have to get Freudian here and say accidents don't happen. You always intended for the thing to to occur that occurred. The Freudian the- parapraxis. Continue, <laughs> Professor. Let's do so. Thank you, my friend. So the reality is the following. That, yes, we know that it was intentional, even if inadvertent. We know that he wants to play with race. We know these are birther claims. And the best way to do it is throw rocks, hide your hands. Pretend you didn't intend this. This is not the kind of nastiness and viciousness. And thank God for our other debater there to suggest that this is ridiculous what he has done. It's ludicrous. But the thing is, they keep doing it. They keep repeating it. This is a constant recurring theme uh, with the president. Inferential racism, implied racism. Oh, no, I'm not a racist. I don't have a racist bone in my body. But those muscles are awful bigoted. So the reality is we've got to come to grips with the fact that the Republicans, but especially the far right wing, has manipulated the symbolism of racial animus to their advantage. Mm -hmm. And then when they get caught on it and caught with their hands in the cookie jar, the proverbial cookie jar, they claim they didn't want dessert. This is feeding and fueling a nasty, vicious, (laughs) anti-black sentiment in this country that continues from the White House on down. Well, Patrick, look, I agree with the central part of your premise. You don't need to do this in this campaign. He's got points that he can argue. He's got uh, different indicators in the economy and, you know, even in, in the world that he could point to. But for some reason, our president and those around him who support him dance with the fringe right. And this is what happened here again. Well, Chris, it did. And clearly, at some point, Donald Trump Jr. realized it because he took the retweet down. It never should have happened in the first place. Mm. Let's realize this, though. What I think is most interesting is the professor's point is that it's always race. It's always race. I've been hearing this about Republicans long before Donald Trump. The the, the problem I have with this is the problem with this I have is that every single time the Democrats decide that they don't have something to talk about, we run to race. Look, Hillary Clinton ran an entire campaign on identity politics, and she lost. She lost the Obama coalition. She did a terrible job bringing African-Americans, Hispanics, young people, and others who should be very concerned and are about race into her camp for the election. My problem is this. Every single time people on the left go after Republicans and conservatives for race, it doesn't seem to ding this president. Why is that? I don't know. You let's would ask think Mark, by now, I got an answer. Let, some let's, of this let, would stick, let's ask but it Professor doesn't Dyson. stick, Chris. Why doesn't it stick? Well, first of all, 
it's not only about race. It's not exclusively about race. It's just it's the fact that, uh, as so many people have said, many Republicans in the right wing live in the 51st state, the state of denial. So they refuse to acknowledge that what is before us is before us. So when obvious examples of racial animus, hostility, uh, racial implication and racial inference are there, they go, oh, my God, let's look for every other thing. What does Occam's razor say? Let's look for the simplest explanation. There is a desire to manipulate sentiment and passion in this country because of race. And why doesn't it stick to them? Because there is a great sea of white supremacy, unconscious bigotry, and just plain old racism that exists every day where we know that people don't find him at fault. They don't find it problematic. Um, Of course, there are good people on both sides. Why do they attack our president? He's simply stating the case. So my friend, to, to point to the fact that it doesn't stick to the president as an index of whether or not we are concerned about racism, A, or B, whether it exists in the real world, is simply not the case. And then it amazes me that my right-wing brothers and sisters can never acknowledge uh, a spade as a spade, so to speak, can never acknowledge when we have a clear example of something that has gone awry and that is offensive, can never just simply say, yep, that was wrong. Well, he did say this was a mistake, Mike. He said this was a mistake for Donald This particular instance, absolutely. Right. Go ahead, Patrick. Let me respond, Chris, to the professor. Look, racism is an ugly thing. I think the professor and I both agree on that. It's a terrible, ugly thing. It has no place in our politics. What I find often is the things the president says and done, in this case, Donald Jr. has done, is offensive. But, you know, I look at the way race is used on both sides. I think Elizabeth Warren's little game that she played with being a Native American to promote her own career, to promote her political narrative, that was using race in a different way, and that was equally offensive. The professor's right. Using race is a bad thing when you're trying to hurt someone else and gain politically. But it works both ways. Well, here is, but here's this, this false, this equi- false equivalency. A feather is not an anvil. There is no doubt that it was offensive uh, that would happen with Elizabeth Warren. But that in no way uh, compares to the constant repetitive theme that is recurring in, the, in Republican right-wing circles. So you're absolutely right that on both sides there are offenses, but they are not equal, my friend. And when we look at the, the balance of, uh, at the end of the day, we know that there are so many people who are invested in the kind of race denial a refusal to acknowledge what's before us. And when you said before identity politics, as if white men are not the biggest arbiters of racial identity politics in America. And here's the greatest manifestation of it, to deny you have it. One of the great privileges of whiteness oh, is to please, deny that whiteness professor. exists. One really? of the greatest identities, one of the really greatest identities of white here. men is to deny the reality that politics of identity have been coming from the very beginning. Thomas Jefferson, Abraham professor, Lincoln, those are politics of identity as well, sir. Professor, Professor, this racist lounge act that you do, uh, we've been on this Oh, don't d- be smarmy and condescending. Stick to the argument, sir. No, no, hold on. 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 Don't talk over each other and also something. Patrick. I haven't heard you call someone a racist. Patrick. You haven't called me a racist yet. Patrick. I'm waiting for that, sir. Well, you want him to call you that so that you can say, look what he did again and play to the fringe right, which you shouldn't do either. But on this show, you will never hear anybody insult you openly on my show. We disagree with decency on this show. Right. Don't call what the professor's putting out there That's a lounge a act. You can, you can counter it. You can say it's hogwash, but try to keep We don't disparage here. And I've got to tell you, I was going to celebrate I, both I of you guys for having I, a pretty Chris, reasoned Chris, debate. Wait, here's my last question for you, Patrick. 
Listen, it's the only, yes, a broad brush. I'm using like a sprayer and a roller half the time just to try to get anything <laughs> that is acceptable to an audience that wants to be running in different directions. Here's my question for you. I agree again with your central premise. This president can run this race down the middle on his achievements if he so chooses. Why this dance with the right? And I don't mean it episodically. It keeps bubbling up, and I don't know why he thinks he needs them. Is Steve Bannon still calling him and saying, don't abandon those people out there on the way right? You need them. Why? Why have anything like this in his midst? I like your Steve Bannon impression, by the way. Listen, I don't know the answer to that, Chris. I think it's offensive to many, many white people when we get down into this awful racism stuff. It doesn't help anybody. It depresses people from coming out and voting. So at the end of the day, the American people are going to figure this out. But what's incredible is that so far, this behavior hasn't seemed to stick to Trump. No, but you know what? I'm I don't like, you that's I don't a good like thing. the I'm argument, I'm Patrick. I'll tell you why. No, it's not mystifying. I'll tell you what. It's depressing. It is uh, mystifying to me. And I'll tell you why. It is predictable it's, and, and depressing. It's it predictable, predictable and depressing. And I'll tell you why it is. Because there are some people, and I only believe it's some. Michael Eric would destroy me on this any night. But this is my feeling. Some of his supporters... Cotton to these types of beliefs. And the majority of the president's supporters don't care about what he says and does. That's why it doesn't stick to him, because we've reached a point of disaffection. And on the right, that there is a complicity in saying, look, I'm getting the judges. I've got my tax cut. He says ugly things. He does ugly things. I expect nothing better from any politician. That's a tough spot uh, for us to be. I'm trying to get us out of it. That's why I say no open insults on each other, you know, characterizing the other person. LBJ, Attack the L- arguments. But I got to right. jump. I got to jump, Professor. Michael Eric mm. Dyson, you're very smart. You got Freudian parapraxis. You got Occam's razor. I mean, how much can you think you're going to get? LBJ, pick your pockets. Poor white people will do it for you if you convince them they're better than the lowest black man. That's what we see going on in the masses of many Af- uh, well, white societies in this country. It should stop because we're better than that. Patrick Absolutely. Griffin, thank you for making the arguments. You're welcome you, on this show. Thank you, Chris. No ad hominem. Yeah, the ad hominem to the person. I don't want to see it on this show. Why? You get enough of it. We'll get into it. We'll get hot, especially when I'm one-on-one with somebody. I think the testing is helpful. But you got to, we can't be insulting each other. You got to think about your ideas. You got to talk about where you don't agree. You have to find a way forward. Now, speaking of that... What a doozy of a trip this was to the Far East. You talk about low expectations and yet still being disappointed. Who made more headlines here? At the G20, the president or his daughter? This is not about media. This is about matter of fact. Ivanka crossed all kinds of lines according to the biographer who's already written a book on what she means in this current environment. She's here next with an addendum. Vicki Ward. Look, no matter how you want to define the new normal, this that we saw this weekend, no good. You're supposed to see the president on the world stage. But to just have his daughter, and I'm not attacking her. I'm sure she's a great, smart business person. But she's not a diplomat. And she has no business being at the G20. And if she wasn't at her father's side... She was rubbing elbows with foreign leaders, and there's a video going all over the Internet where they seemed to be discomfited, uncomfortable with her presence. She even overshadowed the Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo. He had to struggle for a place in a group photo. She had to step aside. Doesn't work. No foreign policy experience. And yet she's able to go where few Americans can simply because 
you have this family situation where it does not belong. Nepotism, okay? And it's a problem. Let's bring in Vicki Ward, investigative journalist, best-selling author of Kushner, Inc., joins me now. And, of course, it threads through the influence. But this is no disrespect to her. I'm sure the father no. wants her there, so she's doing it. I'm sure she's fine. She has no business being there, and this president needs the best around him. Right. Well, I think it's, it's really dangerous, Chris, because basically what this weekend has done is send a signal to leaders around the world that the American president can be manipulated through his family. And that is incredibly dangerous, particularly when those family members, Ivanka and her husband, Jared, have not passed Senate confirmation hearings. They were not, you know, intelligence experts, didn't even think they should have a security clearance because of their conflicts of interest. Um, you know, I was reading again today the transcript of the remarks uh, former Secretary of State Rex Tillerson gave to Congress last week where he talked about the need to have one foreign policy, the need for the Secretary of State or the special envoys to be the ones who negotiated with uh, outside leaders to be effective and how dangerous it was to have in, in his particular testimony, he talked about Jared Kushner, but how dangerous for this country it is to have Jared or Ivanka, who are unqualified and inexperienced, being channels to their father for negotiators who can manipulate them. And you don't know what the priorities are. And again, I'm right. not painting with the brush of anything felonious or anything like that. However, the ethical standard is supposed to be semblance of impropriety. You don't do anything that even someone might think is wrong. And yet you have Ivanka cutting deals with her business that supposedly she's removed from well, in China during a trade battle. We heard from Tillerson about what he thought was going on with Kushner and who he was meeting with behind his back and why it was right. always seemed somehow business related to Kushner's business. It just sends the wrong signal. It completely sends uh, the wrong signal. And I, and I also have to say that, you know, the, the people who wrote that, well, let's not be too hard on Ivanka because this, you know, she does, after all, talk up women's empowerment. But, but really, Chris, you have to think, how empowered does she look as a woman to be standing there in a position like that simply because she is somebody's daughter? Mm. That, that, that is not a very feminist message. In fact, it's the absolute opposite. And I think this, this weekend she has managed to undermine her president, the, the president's cabinet, the secretary of state and the national security secretary. It's really troubling. Do you believe that the deeper you go, the more problematic it is? Or does it end for you with, look, he's my father. He wants me there. Uh, this is an opportunity that we would have never had. So my husband and I, that's why we're there. Or do you still believe, because of the reporting and what you continue yes. to learn, that there is more of an agenda at play? No, I think that this, this whole what we see again and again in plain sight is... Um, you know, a White House that is a family real estate business. And, you know, the reporting in my book um, was really all about the deal making that was going on behind Rex Tillerson's back in the Middle East in real time. There's a, there's a line in my book that I was really surprised people didn't pick up on. The February, the first February of this administration, uh, uh, a man called Sheikh 
HBJ is his nickname, from Qatar, went to see President Trump at Mar-a-Lago. They had a private meeting. This was in February 2017. He went back to the Middle East. He said, basically, this White House is open for business. And every time the president uses his family, you know, we all know that the Trump is a family real estate business. Um, it sends a signal to the rest of the world that America, the American presidency, is for sale. Mm. And also, look, an important point for people is I'm not accusing Ivanka. I'm not accusing Jared. But you don't have to. The standard is if it looks bad, it is bad. And that's what's been violated. And it's going to create concerns. And we're hearing about them right now. Vicky Ward, always a pleasure. Thank you, Chris. To be continued, dot, dot, dot. So another story for you. Barely old enough to drive. Learner's permit, but man, did you see what she did at Wimbledon? Who is this new young star? The star that she took on, what it means to her and to history. Wow story next. Fifteen years old, Wimbledon, the big stage. And at that age, a young woman beats Venus Wimbledon. Uh, Venus Wimbledon. That's what they should call it. Venus Williams. Wow. Corey Coco Golf shook hands with the superstar, telling Venus it was the Williams sisters who first inspired her to pick up a racket. This kid is the youngest player to qualify for Wimbledon in the open era. Let's bring in Laura Coates. There's so much about this story I love, and I loved hearing her talk about what it was like to take on her hero. Can you imagine that you took on your hero, you were able to beat her on the Wimbledon court? I mean, think about that. This is somebody who she said... She idolized this woman, and now here she is, a champion. I can't even imagine. I, I really mean, can't. And look, I misspoke calling her Venus Wimbledon. But in truth, she owned that stage. Uh, you know, we were just checking before this. I'm, I marvel at the age that she's 15 and she's able to put it together like that. But her role model, you know, Venus went pro at 14. I think she won the Australian Open at like 18. Um, it's amazing to achieve huge things like that on that uh, stage at that age. I mean, I got to recheck my life choices because when I was 15 years old, Chris, <laughs> I wasn't winning Wimbledon. I wasn't <laughs> on the stage with my heroes. But you know what? What I loved about her is she actually said, you know what? I got looking at the court and said, the lines are the same. This arena is bigger. The platform's bigger, but the line is the same. And having to calm herself down every single time, she is adorable. But you know what? I don't want to like pat her on the head. She needs to be reckoned with. He's a force now. Oh, Venus yeah. Williams, you took down? Wow. Yeah. She's the real deal, and she's got so much time to develop. You know, I mean, they, look, they make it young in tennis. You know, they, yeah. they, you do see these people come up, especially on the woman's side. They're very young in their teens. But now with the new training and the new coaching, who knows where she could be 10 years from now? She could be like Serena Williams in terms of staying uh, with her role models. You know, nobody's changed a sport in my lifetime the way Serena Williams changed women's tennis. No, and this young girl, I mean, 15 years old, she is poised for greatness. And mm -hmm. I loved her composure. I love that she was able to have the guts in that moment to turn and be gracious enough to say, look, I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for you. I mean, that that's a class act. Winner oh, yeah. already. And it was great. We saw it with Serena, too. And yeah, yeah. it matters to me that she's African-American. I think it's amazing uh, to see 
see the growth of the sport and to see that all the sacrifice of the Williams early on paid off, that they did inspire kids and, yes, African-American kids to get in to the sport that they love so well. And I remember, I mean, for a time, there are stars now, but they had a very hard time. Yeah, People judged their bodies. They judged them because they were black women. They judged mm-hmm. their hair. They judged their physique. They judged their game. And here you have having someone idolize who I idolize the child as well. I mean, this is amazing. And you know what? It is, speaks volumes. And I'm proud to see this young woman and all of them. Very impressive all the way across the board. All right, counselor, I'll see you in a second. <laughs> see you soon. Laura Coates is in for D. Lemon tonight. That's called an upgrade. All right, so some praise, but also we've got to make the right point. The lawmakers going down to the border, bravo and brava for them going down there. However, let's keep it straight what they knew and let's keep it straight what they need to do. The argument next. Hennessy, uh, Genesis. Yeah. Uh, she's showing. Oh, and look at these guys. Hennessy, Hennessy's. He likes our cameras. He wants to be a photographer. He's good looking. <laughs> Objectively, we should applaud the Congressional Hispanic Caucus for leading a delegation to the border today. They did their jobs. They toured some of the facilities and they were horrified. One of the women said that she was told by an agent to drink water out of the toilet. I will never forget the image of being in a cell and seeing 15 women, tears coming down their faces. There were times when I walked through these facilities and I was enraged. And there were times when I walked through this facility and I was brought to my knees in tears. The key is they keep saying, you know, I can't believe it's like this. And they get emotional. Listen. They were drinking water out of the toilet. And that was them knowing what a congressional visit was coming. That was this is CBP on their best behavior, telling people to drink out of the toilet. First, this is also Congress on their best behavior. CBP denies that people are drinking from toilets. It's going to be investigated. We'll find out what the real situation is and expose it. Here's my argument. Why is Congress acting surprised? I'm glad they're upset. Everybody should be upset for months because they were told what they needed to know months ago. 
The Customs and Border Commissioner and acting DHS secretary now has testified to Congress six times this year. Now, now they want to own reality. Great. I'm not going to do a shame campaign. What happens next? Yes, they finally agreed to send more than $4 billion. There are fundamental rules and practices, however, that are still in place and that are more a part of the problem than they are of the solution. So what are they going to do? How are they going to figure out how to engage the Triangle countries and Mexico in a way that improves situations there so there is less need to risk so much here? This administration is cutting funding. What are they going to do about it? All we're hearing, though, is a blame game. That's why I'm calling it out. All right. Look, if there is proof of specific abuses by our border men and women, the people protecting us, then we've got to get after that. We have to expose it. But don't demonize them now like you've discussed and now found something new. Most of the conditions that are bad are out of their control. Finger pointing from right to left is inaccurate and unhelpful. And then there's our president. He made his name selling this border problem. Be honest. And now his defenders from the political fringe are saying the rest of us are seeing that he was right. Wrong. Here's the president in the fall. You have many criminals in that caravan. It's made up of some very tough young people. Very tough. Criminals in some cases. In many cases. They got a lot of rough people in those caravans. They are not angels. That was his message. And you know it. That's why I termed it the brown menace. Then what happens? He keeps being told, it's the kids. It's the kids and the people coming with them. We can't handle it. Help us, help us, help us. So then he goes from brown menace and he starts to add in the humanitarian part. It was new to him, not the rest of us. Listen. This is a humanitarian crisis, a crisis of the heart and a crisis of the soul. Now, he didn't mention the kids the first time. He didn't really talk about the kids that time either, but soul indeed. And yet this president pushed what as a fix? Offense, which clearly wasn't the remedy. And he was told that, too. And if that isn't clear to you now, I can't help you. Fences help, but they were never the fix for this. Will we see our president tour the facilities? He went to tour the fence that wasn't being built the way he said it was when he went there. Will you hear him talk about the kids and their hardships, not just humanitarian crisis? All right. He's selling fear. These faces, they don't sell fear, but they should fuel your fire. Our lawmakers are late to this game. There's a lot more they need to address to help these kids and the ones yet to come. Our president signed their bill into law today, but let's be honest. He'd rather emphasize with despots than the desperate. He sees these kids and the masses coming with them as more of a threat than Kim Jong-un and Iran, if you listen to him, about how measured he is with those despots and how tough he is on these people. Know this. The money's going to help, but it's not going to help overnight. There is a lot more to be done. We must stay on this. That's it for us. CNN tonight with Laura Coates in for D Lemon right now. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country. Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.